Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service coming to you live from London. I'm James Kamarasamy. Today Zimbabwe has a new president, but how different will he be to his predecessor and can he fulfill his promise to attract the necessary foreign investment? And how on earth did he become friends with a man who fought on the other side in Zimbabwe's liberation war? We talked and laughed very often about what happened during the war. I think at one stage he claimed that I'd shot him and I said, no, I didn't because I'm not that bad a shot. So, you know, we laughed about that sort of thing. Also, there's been a big attack in Egypt on a mosque in the Sinai Peninsula. State television is reporting that more than 180 people have died. We'll bring you the latest. And NewsHour's Lise Doucette gets the nighttime nibbles in Riyadh and comes across Saudi women who are hungry for change. We begin, though, in Zimbabwe, where for the first time since 1980, power has changed hands. Just three days after the parliamentary speaker read out a letter of resignation from President Robert Mugabe, his former right-hand man, Emerson Manangagwa, was sworn in at the National Stadium in the capital, Harare, as his successor. Our correspondent, Andrew Harding, was there as the crowds arrived. People are streaming through the turnstiles here outside the national sports stadium on the edge of Harare. Tens of thousands of Zimbabweans coming to watch this inauguration, all convinced that change is coming to this country. What are you expecting? We are expecting a lot from the president Yeah, to change everything. What are you expecting from President Manangagwa? I'm expecting good things. He's a good person. We want to improve our future as he used. We must improve all the things, especially cash crisis in Zimbabwe. Former President Mugabe is not coming today. Is that a surprise? Is that a disappointment? No, it's not a disappointment. Maybe he's so tired he might be want to rest. I'm happy because this country is going to change. We are going to come back. We were staying in South Africa, but we are coming to come back in Zimbabwe because our country is changing now. I'm happy. How long were you away? I was 10 years there in South Africa. 10 years. But now I'm going to come back and I'm I'm going to use my certificates. And I want everything to change. (laughs) I'm happy. Happiness and expectation there. Well, shortly afterwards, the change of leadership was formalised. Less than three weeks after he was sacked and driven into temporary exile, Emerson Manangagwa took the oath of office. I, Emerson Dambuzomnangagwa, swear that as President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, I will be faithful and obey, uphold, and defend the Constitution and all other laws of Zimbabwe. Well, in his first speech as president, he paid tribute to his ousted predecessor, Robert Mugabe, saying that he had made an immense contribution towards building the nation. Whatever errors of commission or omission that may have occurred during that critical phase in the life of our nation, let us all accept and acknowledge his immense contribution towards the building of our nation. To me personally, he remains a father 
mentor, comrade in arms, and my leader. Well, we're joined now from Harare by Andrew Harding. Andrew, just listening to that last phrase there from the new president, you could be forgiven to think that perhaps real change isn't coming, but what does it feel like there? I think it feels like, well, it sounds like real change is coming. This was a a speech carefully targeted at different audiences. Um, He's talking to his base, to those who've benefited from the chaotic programme, or at least politically, who don't want that land reform programme to be undone. He said we wouldn't undo that. But at the same time, for instance, he said that white farmers would be properly compensated, something that has been talked about but hasn't really gone forward in recent years. There was talk of reconciliation, um, which in a way I think is, is, is another way of saying please don't focus on the past, on the failings of ZANU-PF. Let's focus on the plans for the future. And in a way, I think that captures probably the mood of the majority here in Zimbabwe. There are a lot of people still very bitter, still very angry about abuses and so on over the last decade or more. But the vast majority of people I speak to are overwhelmingly focused on the economy, on jobs, on investment. And he ticked a lot of boxes there in his speech today, both for locals who are desperate for jobs, desperate for currency, uh, and foreigners who are looking for a stable environment, very anxious to get back into this country because it is a country with so much potential. Yes, the economy very much at the centrepiece of of that speech. So did he lay out any concrete proposals or was he speaking in more general terms? More general at this stage. uh, I think we're expecting to see his cabinet on Monday, and that will give us an indication of whether, you know, the old guard come in or whether he's true to his word and really does start bringing in fresh faces, technocrats. uh, And from, you know, his reputation, as well as being a tough guy, uh, the enforcer over the years, is also, on the economic front, slightly more to the pragmatic end. So I think on issues lying to bring in more investment, like trying to stabilise the situation with the currency, getting foreign governments and uh, lenders to come in and and, and start bailing out an economy which is really just jammed and stuck at the moment and and needs some liquidity in it. I think on those things, there will be uh, a grace period, probably quite a big grace period, because uh, a lot of governments and a lot of businesses are so keen to see this country get back on track. And I think they will give him the benefit of the doubt, so long as he carries on not just making the right noises, as he's done today, but starts delivering on some reforms. Andrew, thanks very much. Andrew Harding there in Harare. Well, as Andrew was saying, Emerson Manangagwa has a reputation for being a tough guy. He was, in fact, in charge of state security at the time of a brutal crackdown in the province of Matabeleland in the 1980s, in which 20,000 people were killed. Well, he has denied any involvement in the massacres. Our Deputy Africa editor Anne Soy has been finding out what people in that part of Zimbabwe think of their new leader. We are driving down a bumpy country road in Chalocho, north of Bulawayo. There are vast stretches of bush on both sides of the road and occasionally villages. The landscape is beautiful, the area sparsely populated. It's calm on a sunny morning. But over three decades ago, this was the scene of a massacre. 
Meluangwenya is sitting in the shade preparing grass thatch. It's hard work for an 89-year-old, but it's the only way he can earn a living. He is all alone now. He remembers his son Sibangani, who was taken away in 1983 when he was only 14. I went with my wife to go and see what was going on, not knowing that my son was there. When we arrived, we were told my son had been killed and my wife fainted on the spot. I picked her up and took her home, and I went back to bury my child. He was killed by the 5th Brigade, Robert Mugabe's special force, trained by North Korea to crush perceived opponents of the regime. They called it Gukurahundi, meaning rain that washes away the chaff. It is believed that thousands of Ndebele people were killed or disappeared. Decades later, no arrests, no prosecution or reconciliation has taken place here. Nothing has happened yet. No justice has prevailed. If it had, I would have known what happened to the people who killed my son. But they went unpunished. I haven't heard anything that can give me peace. In a bushy area by the roadside, a mass grave, one of many in Matabeleland. This is where Sibangani and eight others were hurriedly buried. The grave remained unmarked until five years ago. Pastor John Moyo built a memorial and that got him into trouble with the authorities. They took me to the bush and asked me where I got the audacity to organise a burial for the victims of the Guku Hurundi, because it was their responsibility. I was told I should never do such a thing again or I'd be arrested. I asked him if things will be different with a new president. No change. Why? There won't be change because Manangagwa and President Mugabe were allies. They are one and the same. When the Guku Hurundi happened, they were on the same side. If Manangagwa was going to make changes, he could have done it by now. Mr Munangagwa was in charge of the intelligence services during the Gukura Hundi campaign. But he strongly denies ever being involved in the massacres. Wild celebrations on the streets of Bulawayo greeted the fall of Mugabe. This is what the opposition stronghold has always wanted. But it was delivered by their rival, the ruling party. We've removed a tyrant, but we have not removed a tyranny. David Coltart is a former cabinet minister from the Matebeleland region. He once worked with both the outgoing and the incoming presidents. We don't want an unconditional embracing of this new government. And what we say to the international community is join us in saying to Emerson Managagwa and this new government, comply with the constitution in letter and spirit and then be rewarded for complying with that constitution. People are still enjoying this moment. Young activists dance to one of the most famous musicians as they call for their rights. But 
While they might not have been able to protest like this two weeks ago, they are not sure that they will still be able to in a few weeks' time. And that was Anne Soy reporting. Later on in the programme, we'll be asking the IMF's point man on Zimbabwe whether President Manangagwa really can attract much-needed foreign investment to the country. And we'll also be hearing from a, a long-time ally of the new Zimbabwean leader and a fairly unlikely one at that. Do stay tuned for that. Coming up here on NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Later on in the programme, we'll hear from an enemy-turned-friend of the new Zimbabwean president, Emerson Manangagwa. He was definitely a patriot. I always felt that from the very first time I met him that he would be better for our country than the chap who's just gone. And he was a hard person, but I thought fair, and determined to ensure that Zimbabwe became a country that was worth living in. Reminder of our other headlines at this hour. State media in Egypt say that more than 180 people have been killed in a militant attack on a mosque in the Sinai Peninsula. The United States has called on Pakistan to re-arrest Hafiz Saeed, the Islamist leader suspected of planning a deadly assault in India. And the United Nations says it's not yet safe for Rohingya Muslims to return to their homes in Myanmar. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour, coming to you live from our studios in central London with James Kimarasamy. There is concern and anger in China following allegations of abuse at a kindergarten in Beijing. There were angry scenes outside the gates of the RYB kindergarten in the east of the city, with parents expressing fears that their toddlers had been injected with drugs and given pills to sedate them. The BBC's Steve McDonnell in Beijing has been telling me more. Well, it all started when some parents started talking to each other and noticed that their children had these marks on them which seemed to be from injections. And this led to concerns that somebody at the kindergarten might be using needles as a way of punishing the kids. And there are reports that the local police have now looked at the kids and said that at least the marks do seem to be consistent with somebody injecting them. And the other allegation at the kindergarten is that they've been told at various times to strip in the presence of a grown male adult who's also naked. Now, the police have all this information now and investigating the company which runs it, RYB, has said that they're providing relevant surveillance material to the police. Three teachers, at least, have been stood down temporarily while this police investigation is going on. And the company's trying to say, look, everybody, don't let this get out of hand, don't exaggerate what's happening there. But the reputation of this company, RYB, which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange, has taken a massive hit in China because of these allegations. Just tell us about this company. It's a private company, is it? It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange relatively recently, and they're trying to fight it out according to the company's own website, It runs hundreds of these centres in China, so it's a pretty big operation. They have come in 
to controversy before. There have been criticism at various centres. If this is found to be true, if the police can verify all of this, it's hard to imagine how that kindergarten would survive, or possibly they'll just have to, you know, it's a big company, maybe they'll just have to sack the staff. And I imagine this is making waves on China's vibrant social media scene. You can imagine the outrage from people when they hear this. Yeah, naturally. There were pictures that went around yesterday when a crowd of parents, understandably very upset, gathered outside the school, outside the kindergarten, demanding answers. These photos went around on social media and there's been a storm of criticism of the company as a result and it's really shining the light on the treatment of children in kindergartens in this country uh, I mean I'll give you an example last month there was, a, there was another scandal involving some CCTV type footage which showed a teacher being really rough with a kid like grabbing them by the backpack them falling over and smashing their head on the table another scandal last month in Shanghai, also with teachers being really rough with kids and little kids coming home covered in bruises. But this seems to be, if it's true, a more systematic and uh, deliberate form of abuse, quite on another scale. These kindergartens are private companies and there are going to be big questions about what needs to be done to make sure this type of abuse doesn't happen in the future. That was the BBC Steve McDonnell in Beijing. Now, if you're listening to yesterday's programme, you will have heard my news hour colleague Lise Doucette reporting from Riyadh's Ritz-Carlton Hotel, the lap of luxury in which some of the current guests would rather not be sitting. They're amongst those detained in Saudi Arabia's recent anti-corruption clampdown, an element of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's wider reform strategy designed to bring Saudi society into the 21st century. Well, for Saudi women, that means being able to drive from next June. And as Lee's found out when she nipped out for a nighttime snack, to take control of more than just the wheel. Not the kind of sound you'd necessarily associate with Saudi Arabia. And this is not the kind of scene either. I'm at the night market. It's like a fairground full of food trucks. Sushi Mia, Phenomenon Sweets, London Coffee, even Temptation. This is all part of the unprecedented change that's taking place in this conservative kingdom. Not only are the food trucks here different, it's also that men and women are socialising together. Women are working at some of the food trucks, and some of the food trucks are even owned by women. All of this would have been unthinkable even months ago. And here's a truck that's just opening up. You're the owner of the Secret Burger. What's your name? My name is Dima. How old are you, Dima? I'm 27. Are there many women who own food trucks? Yeah, there's some women who's worked here. And your friend is with you? What's your name? Uh, My name is Rana. How unusual is it in Saudi Arabia that women should be allowed to have their own company like this? Is this new? I think nowadays uh, women have rights to have everything here in Saudi Arabia. She can own a restaurant, food truck. She can own her salon and like any stuff. People's minds have changed. Yeah, really here in Saudi Arabia, they become educated. They can get a job easy. So both of you went to school in America? Yes. And you just came back? Yes. Did you think, wow, the country's changing? Yeah, a lot. Except there's no alcohol. <laughs> what is your name? Arwa. 
Reem, are you both working together here at this coffee truck? Yeah. We've got Turkish coffee. Yeah. You have the urn for the coffee. We call it Kenneka. Yeah. So the bricks are being heated. Sand. And then there's this big cauldron. It attracts people, actually. And the taste is different, too? No, just for sure. And what about this? Is this a new place as well for young yeah. people to hang also, out? Yeah, it's a new place for uh, people who want to eat, who want to sit and enjoy the view. Because when I first came to Saudi, I was told that men and women couldn't mingle together in public. Yeah, actually, that's true. But now it's changing. And that's good. I have a freedom now. Freedom? Yeah. yeah. I'm power. Rima's laughing. Yeah. And power. You still have the guardian system where you need permission from a male relative to travel? Yeah, of course. I think Can, that's good? I cannot travel or do anything without my father's permission. Is that something you want removed? Yeah, actually. Because I'm 29 now. I think I'm mature enough to take the decision about myself. Do you think that will change as uh, well? I hope so. You're wearing a black abaya and you've got a headscarf on. Would you prefer to wear whatever you like? It's our religion. It's not from the government. No, it's our religion to cover our head and our body with abaya and hijab. And we like it, actually. And Saudis sitting around tables enjoying the warm evening weather. And around this table, four men. And what is your name? Abdulaziz. Your name? Muhammad. In an area like this, men and women mingling together, women are working here. It's about time we have this type of change, you know. We are waiting for this change for a long, long time, you know. I think there's still opposition among more conservative elements of society? This is going to be still forever, the conservative, you know, people everywhere, you know. The society counted by how many people would love to change, you know, not how many people are conservative. Why do you think this change is happening now and so fast? I think most of the changes uh, happening now is because of a new young leadership that's, that just came here. Before we used to have uh, old, uh, I guess, dictators and so on, but they were old with uh, old mentalities. Now there is a young uh, person in charge who, who want to take the matters in his own hand. Some people worry that he's doing too much. He's pursuing modernization at home, but he's also being very aggressive in the region. I don't support that as much as I support him inside. Yeah. Do you think that will have a cost for Saudi Arabia by being too involved outside? We're already uh, bearing the consequences. Uh, I mean, less than a month ago, there was a ballistic missile uh, almost hit the airport. So why do we get involved? There will be negative consequences as a result of being so aggressive outside. I think we should focus uh, on the internal affairs. Because, of course, they're worried, they say, about the influence of Iran, that that's why they're doing it. Let someone else take care of it. Why do we get involved? Or do it diplomatically or let the other Arabs. Why do we uh, become the police of, of the region? Question for Lise Doucette there, reporting from Riyadh. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC World Service. Coming up next, we'll be hearing about that deadly attack on a mosque in Egypt. First, though, thousands of drug suspects have been killed in the Philippines since President Duterte vowed to wipe out the illegal drug trade last year. Human rights groups say that many of the police killings were planned and therefore illegal. The police say that any suspects killed by officers were resisting arrest. Howard Johnson reports. A raid by the Philippine Drug Enforcement Agency in the southern city of Davao. Four agents wearing body cameras storm into a house pointing automatic rifles. A search of the house reveals a small stash of drugs. The suspect and his girlfriend are arrested without a shot being fired. This is the new face of the Philippines' war on drugs, or at least how the government would like you to see it. 
Last month, President Rodrigo Duterte asked the Philippine Drug Enforcement Agency, or PDEA as they call themselves, to take the lead on his war on drugs, replacing the national police force. Thousands of drug suspects have been killed since President Duterte vowed to wipe out the illegal drug trade last year. Human rights groups say many of the police killings were planned and therefore illegal. The police say any suspects killed by officers were resisting arrest. So how will things be different under Padea? I spoke to their director general, Aaron Aquino. He told me he was looking to oversee a less bloody war on drugs. For the last month, we don't have any casualties. But during my time, uh, since September 12, where I was designated uh, as the director general of PDEA, we have one casualty, uh, actually. Uh, there was an armed encounter. He's a, an ex-army, and uh, he chose to f fight it out uh, with our agents. In the past, there were lots of casualties, and now under your watch, there aren't many casualties. What, what's changed? Well, the only thing that I'm trying to tell my people is just to, to do the right thing uh, based on... Uh, the rule of law. The PNP was, was uh, removed uh, from this war on drugs precisely because uh, there are some issues against them on some abuses and well, the so-called extrajudicial killings. Now, interestingly, that line goes against what both the Philippine National Police Force and President Duterte say. They claim there have been no cases of extrajudicial killings during this war on drugs. So is this the end of the police's involvement in this drug war? In short, no. They've been pulled off this job once before in January after a South Korean businessman was kidnapped and killed by anti-drug police and then reinstated shortly after. And just this week, President Duterte has said that he will return the police to the drug war but didn't say when. I asked Mr Aquino what he made of this. Yeah, that will happen. In fact, that's my wish since the very beginning that the PNP, the NBI and other law enforcement agencies will be back uh, to join us in this war on drugs. And uh, together, we'll, we'll fight. Mr. Duterte said he appointed Padea to lead the war on drugs just to parry and to appease the bleeding hearts and the media. The question now is, when the police do return to the drug war, will they adopt the code of conduct laid out by Mr. Aquino? And that was the BBC's Howard Johnson reporting from the Philippines. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. The Egyptian government has declared three days of national mourning after an attack on a mosque in the Sinai Peninsula, which, according to state media reports, has killed at least 180 people. We can join the BBC's Sally Nabil now in Cairo. Sally, what do we know about the attack? It's an unprecedented attack by all means, uh, not just given the high number of casualties that keeps on rising because we understand many of the injured, they are in quite a critical condition, but also given the fact that uh, the militants, they have targeted worshippers inside a mosque. What we, un what we know is that an explosion, uh, a bomb went off not far from the mosque while the worshippers were about to finish their Friday prayers. And after the uh, explosion took place, a couple of militants with automatic rifles. They walked into the mosque and they shot at everybody inside the mosque. And there were also a couple of militants outside the mosque shooting at people. So the victims, they are not just inside the mosque, but also civilians in the street. We also know that the militants, they targeted the ambulance cars that rushed to uh, the scene to save 
the victims. So it's a horrendous attack by all means. I mean, Sinai have been suffering from militant attacks over the past couple of years, but uh, an attack with this scale has never happened before. When we say militants, who do we think we're talking about? Uh, so far, no no one has claimed responsibility for this attack yet. But we know that uh, IS-affiliated militants have been operating in the northern Sinai Peninsula for about three or four years now. And despite the repeated attacks by the Egyptian army and police, they still manage to target whether the military forces, civilians, Christians. They forced many Christians to flee over the past year. But this is the first time that they orchestrate or the militants orchestrate this kind of attack inside a mosque, targeting civilians while they are uh, doing their Friday prayers. And it's also worth mentioning that Friday is a weekend in Egypt and things are normally quiet and a lot of people go to the mosques for the Friday prayers. So it seems that they managed to choose a place where they can hit the largest number possible of victims. Sally, thanks very much. Sally Nabil there in Cairo. Sally was saying the numbers are going up. Indeed, as we were talking, state television in Egypt now reporting 200 people have been killed in that attack. Well, let's join Timothy Caldas now. He's a fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy in Washington, and he's uh, in Cairo now for us. Timothy, um, one of the worst, the worst attack perhaps in recent history? Um, With the exception of the Metro attack, uh, attack that killed 224 people. Uh, yeah, it's the uh, it's the worst attack uh, in modern Egyptian history. And uh, these what, casualty figures are unprecedented for Egyptians to be facing. And, and what are your thoughts, initial thoughts about who might be responsible? How uh, oh dare we? Was, sorry about that. Uh, I agree with Sally that it's uh, it's likely uh, it's likely ISIS. Um, they, they've been operating in northern Sinai for years, uh, and uh, there's there was an attack. The mosque is a is a is a Sufi mosque, and they uh, there was an attack on a 90 year old 98 year old Sufi sheikh uh, quite recently, uh, as well as uh, <clears throat> as other uh, worshippers in the past. Uh, but there's also there's also suspicions that it might be uh, retaliation for uh, tribes that are working with the state uh, against Sinai. Um, so uh, it seems very likely that they would be the uh, they're the prime suspect, I think, at this time. Timothy, I think we're going to leave it there. The, the line uh, isn't great to you, but uh, Timothy Caldas, fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy there um, from Cairo with an assessment of uh, what uh, might have happened at that attack in Sinai Peninsula. <laughs> Let's return to our uh, main story today, the inauguration of uh, Emerson Mnangagwa as the new president of Zimbabwe. Although he paid tribute to his predecessor, Robert Mugabe, during today's ceremony, he does inherit from him an economic basket case, 90% unemployment, high levels of poverty, a non-existent currency and a place on the international lender's blacklist since 1999. Well, during his inaugural address, Mr Mnangagwa emphasised that his priority was turning around Zimbabwe's economy and something intimately linked to that improvement, its international reputation. The fabulous natural resources we have as a country must now be exploited for the national good. We welcome mutually gainful partnerships with international investors whose presence in our midst must be valued and secured. 
The bottom line is an economy which is back on its feet. Only that way can we recover this economy, create jobs for your, our youths, and reduce poverty for all our people who must witness real positive changes in our lives. We're joined now by Jean Leon, the International Monetary Fund's Mission Chief to Zimbabwe. He's uh, on the line from Washington, D.C. Uh, welcome to News Hour. First of all, your assessment of the state of the Zimbabwean economy from Africa's breadbasket to basket case. What went wrong? Well, uh, a number of things always go wrong when countries go down. But uh, I think probably the, the, the biggest problem has been the, the fiscal side with government uh, ending up spending a lot more than they, than they had. What did you make of the new president's message? Well, I think all messages of that form uh, have to be messages of hope and messages of vision. And in, in that sense, I think um, at least the beginning of, uh, of, that, uh, of that vision seems to be emerging, that the economy has to be at the front as a means of uh, generating improved social welfare for the citizens of the of the country. But in terms of what he wants to put the emphasis on, he said it's all about agriculture. Do you welcome that? Yeah, I think um, it's it's more than agriculture. Um, let's let's look at this in its uh, in its bigger picture. Um, one is, uh, I think the point he made was correct. Uh, the country has some infrastructure. It has a good human capital base. It has natural resources. So the potential is there to make uh, Zimbabwe a flourishing nation that its uh, people can can be proud of. So that that I think is a point we can we can agree on. Um, however, in terms of getting to that stage, one needs a complete package of, uh, of measures. And that package, uh, as we have consistently said, has to embrace a certain degree of uh, fiscal um, discipline, has to have a strong monetary and exchange rate basis, and has to have significant uh, structural reforms that are wide-ranging that would um, allow there to be significant improvement in investor confidence um, to allow those investors to, to want to uh, come in and grow the economy um, in a way that is consistent with the vision that the president has just said. So what kind of specific reforms are you looking for? Are you for example, looking for a reversal of the policy that Zimbabweans have to own 51% of any company? Well, at least that has to be clarified um, in a way that reduces policy uncertainty. It is not so much what the policy is, but um, ensuring that people understand what the policy is, are comfortable with the policy, and can then make whatever adjustments they need to do in light of that understanding. So policy uncertainty, I think, um, is one of the things that needs to be to be clearly done. But in general, I think leveling the playing field, ensuring that the environment is right, the cost of doing business is there, governance issues are in place, there is transparency, um, and uh, in general, things that can help um, keep uh, the country in an efficient uh, moving way is is really the way you want to go going forward. What about the messenger? What about the new man? Because he has 
faced accusations of enriching himself. I think uh, the WikiLeaks uh, released, uh, made public a cable from the U.S. ambassador who suggested that he's the richest man in Zimbabwe. There have been allegations that he's been involved in exploiting minerals in, in Congo. Are you concerned about him personally? I am not aware of um, that particular reference that you make. It was in a UN Security Council report in 2002. In general, general, I think what one has to focus on is the ability of a government uh, to, to have appropriate institutions that can implement policy on behalf of and for the people of a country. Uh, countries are never about one person. What about institutions, though? Do you believe that corruption is institutionalised in Zimbabwe and that needs to change? Um, I think institutions can always be made stronger. Um, where there are elements that, uh, that suggest that uh, funds are not being used appropriately, then one should aim to, to strengthen those. I wonder on, on the agricultural point... Um, the new president said that there will not be a reversal of, of the land reforms that came in and which uh, white farmers lost uh, their land. Are, are you concerned about that? Would you have liked to have seen those reforms reversed? Well, I think the president has only just started and he's just made uh, an introductory remark. Um, I, I think one should uh, clearly wait until that is developed further. Even under the previous um, administration, I think there was discussion about uh, looking at land administration issues. And so clearly these are points that need to be looked at. But on the broader issue, I think, of um, agriculture, clearly agriculture is one of the sectors that has potential. The issue we have raised with agriculture really is the efficiency of the spending on agriculture. If there was one thing that you would like to see done as a priority then, what would it be? Uh, I think the first is clearly to put the fiscal house in order uh, because that is the almost root cause of everything that we see uh, going, going forward, but not to see it as a panacea. The fiscal has to be supported by other policies that will hang together in a way going forward. Jean Leon, the yes. IMF's mission chief to Zimbabwe, thanks very much. Now, just to remind you, we're still trying to get more on that attack on a mosque in the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt during Friday prayers. State television reporting at least 200 people killed. You can find out more on our website. Just go to bbc.com forward slash news. And if you've been uh, tuning into News Hour recently, you may have heard some reporting from Lebanon from my colleague Tim Franks. He's been covering the shock resignation of the Lebanese Prime Minister Saeed Hariri a few weeks ago, uh, a resignation that was made out of the blue and rather oddly from Saudi Arabia. Well, that uh, story's taken another turn this week. Upon returning to Lebanon, Mr Hariri agreed to withdraw his resignation and to seek dialogue. But dialogue with whom and to what end? On this week's edition of NewsHour Extra, Owen Bennett-Jones and a panel of expert guests are asking who or what is driving events in Lebanon. Was the original resignation really about Mr Hariri's security, as he claimed, or was it a move against Hezbollah by Saudi Arabia? And has that move now backfired? The battle for Lebanon on this week's NewsHour Extra. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. And a reminder of our top story this hour, Zimbabwe's new president, Emerson Mnangagwa, in his inaugural address, has outlined his plans for the country's struggling economy. The task at hand is that of rebuilding 
our great country. I implore you all to declare that never again, never again, should the circumstances that have put Zimbabwe in an unfavorable position be allowed to recur or overshadow its prospects. One other headline from the BBC newsroom, state media in Egypt say that more than 200 people have been killed in a militant attack on a mosque in the Sinai Peninsula. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour, coming to you live from our studios in central London with James Kamarasamy. Let's return now to our top story, the inauguration of Emerson Manangagwa as the new president of Zimbabwe. I've been speaking to someone who has known him for many years and reportedly acted as his go-between in a plan to unseat Robert Mugabe 15 years ago. He is an unlikely ally. Colonel Lionel Dyke was a white officer in the former Rhodesian army who fought against Manangagwa and his colleagues during the Rhodesian Bush War, or Zimbabwe's War of Liberation, which led to the end of white minority rule there. Colonel Dyke, who went on to set up a landmine clearing company, is also rumoured to be Emerson Manangagwa's business associate. The new president was described in a US cable obtained by WikiLeaks as the richest man in Zimbabwe, and he's been named in a UN investigation into the looting of minerals in Congo. Well, I spoke to uh, Colonel Dyke and I asked him when he'd first met the new Zimbabwean president. I think I met him very shortly after independence in Zimbabwe when I was still and was commanding the airborne forces. There was an incident in Zimbabwe that caused me to spend some time with him. He was then, I think, the Minister of State Security. And what were your first impressions of him? My first impressions of him, which have abided all this time, is that he's a very strong person. He was definitely a patriot. I always felt that from the very first time I met him that he would be better for our country than the chap who's just gone. And he was a hard person, but I thought fair, and determined to ensure that Zimbabwe became a country that was worth living in. And I think was he was pretty disappointed as years went on and we talked about what was happening with the, the last fellow. Whose name you don't seem to be able to pronounce. Is, is, is there a reason for that? No, Mugabe. No, I think he's an idiot. You, of course, fought on the other side of the war uh, with uh, Manangagwa. Did, did you discuss that? Yes, of course. I, you know, I fought on the Rhodesian side for many years and subsequently uh, when... Uh, peace broke out. I stayed behind and fought in Zimbabwe uh, for, for many reasons. I, I felt that it, it's easy to run away, but uh, staying behind, we could do uh, a lot of good to try and slow down the potential rot. Uh, I think we did for 10 years, but after that, it, it was pretty poor and I left. Did we discuss the war? Of course. I discussed the war in some detail with both Munangagwa and with uh, General Chiwenga, who I, I knew from those early days before he became an officer in the army and subsequently all the way through to him becoming the commander of defence forces. We talked and laughed very often about what happened during the war. Talked and laughed? Well, I think at one stage he claimed that I'd shot him, and I said, no, I didn't because I'm not that bad a shot. Um, So, you know, we laughed about that sort of thing. And as time went on, and you say you became very disillusioned, uh, if that's the right word, or never... Um, 
took to the leadership of Robert Mugabe. Did you work then together with Emerson Mnangagwa to remove him? <laughs> no, I've never worked to remove him, but I have been in touch with uh, Emerson and particularly with uh, General Chiwenga over the years very frequently. And I believe that uh, having got Mnangagwa to where he is now, it should have happened 10 years ago. But I think they were very conscious of not wanting a bloody revolution, which you can see has happened now. They were very conscious of making this as peaceful as possible because we all talked, even in those early days, of no more war in Zimbabwe. And we all agreed with that. Just to return to the question of whether or not you were involved in, in efforts to remove Robert Mugabe or certainly to get a transition in place. I mean, Morgan Changarai, the leader of the MDC, reported that you met him about 15 years ago to talk about a transition. What do you say to to that? Yes, we did. Um, We had quite a peaceful transition planned, again, with the full knowledge of everyone there and with um, your government. The current group of people supporting um, Morgan Changarai were not keen on the idea. And um, the operation fell flat. But it would have been at that time that Mugabe was prepared to go and had indicated to the uh, senior officers of the army that he was prepared to go. And when the support that was expected from the then opposition did not materialize in voting for a two-thirds majority in parliament, I would like to believe that at that time, Mugabe decided that he will never go. Uh, But at that time, also, I must state that he was prepared to go uh, and a soft landing had been planned for him. So was that a a great missed opportunity, if you like? It was the biggest opportunity we missed, in my opinion, since 1980 and since the time that he became a very poor bet for my country. Who or what do you blame then for for that not happening? Uh, It's easy to place blame in retrospect, but I blame the people who were going to give the two-thirds majority to the party um, to change the constitution to allow Mugabe to appoint a successor. And the reluctance came from the opposition party. And it's pretty certain that at that time, in my opinion, that Mugabe himself was going to appoint Munangagwa then as his successor. And if he had? If he had, I believe our country would never have been in the state that it is today. Munangagwa is a very pragmatic person. He understands the requirement for farmers on the ground. He understands the requirement for the world at large to be involved in our country. And I don't think he's narrow-minded at all to try and produce the climate that Mugabe did, which actually choked anything that was going to happen in the country to develop it. Uh, Munagagwa is a very practical man and can look through and beyond trying to appease the masses. It's been reported that you're a business associate of him. Is that correct? Absolutely. load of crap. I've never been a business associate of him. I'd like to think I've been a colleague of his for the years that have gone past, but we've never been in business together. That comment that exists does cause me some amusement. You'll have seen, I'm sure, the the reporting on WikiLeaks from the US ambassador suggesting that uh, Mr Manangagwa is... Zimbabwe's richest man, that he's been involved in illicit mining exploitations. What do you know of that? <laughs> I, I think everybody likes to um, vilify these people when they get into a position. I don't know his financial status. I don't think he's any richer or poorer than Mugabe was. 
I think there are a number of ministers in the country who have made uh, money for themselves. What Munangagwa has done with the uh, mining community, I've no idea. But he's always been involved in mining and assisting people with mines. And, and you know, I wouldn't know about that. I'm not a businessman. But I don't think he's the richest man in, in Zimbabwe by any manner of means. That was Colonel Lionel Dyke, an enemy turned friend of the new president of Zimbabwe, Emerson Mnangagwa. And that brings to an end this edition of News Hour from me, James Kamara Sami and the rest of the team here in London. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.